so loud. Always the lips. Yeah. <laughs> Always the lips. The lips. <laughs> it's the lips. <laughs> I'm upset. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink. We prepared especially for them. I'm Luther Hughes. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji on the ones and twos Tahat. On the ones and twos. I don't know what that means, really. Okay, moving on. Are you coding now? Uh, are you a code? Do you code? No. Anyway, before <laughs> we continue, <laughs> if you haven't already, rate us five lovely stars and leave us a sweet, little, innocent, admiring review. Or not would, innocent. Yeah, I'd like something salacious. I'd actually <laughs> prefer a saucy <laughs> review. Get vulgar. As long as it comes with five stars. Yes, that's the one caveat. This week, we <laughs> talked to Oliver De La Paz about parenting, prose poems, and myths. Our drink for this episode is The Long Line, a mocktail made with espresso soda, almond syrup, and chocolate bitters. Mm. <laughs> Oliver De La Paz is the author of five collections of poetry, Names Above Houses, Furious Lullaby, Requiem for the Orchard, which won the Akron Prize, post-subject, a fable, and the most recent collection, The Boy in the Labyrinth. He is the co-editor with Stacey Lynn Brown of A Face to Meet the Faces, an anthology of contemporary persona poetry, and he co-chairs the advisory board of Kundiman, a a not-for-profit organization dedicated to the promotion of Asian American poetry. He teaches at the College of the Holy Cross and in the low-residency MFA program at Pacific Lutheran University. But... Before we jump into our conversation with Oliver, we're going to answer a question from our audience. Sassy Sally says, I am so sick of the sonnet. Everyone's doing it. And there are so many different ones. How do I know a sonnet is a true sonnet? Don't look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Gigi, you're in grad school. (laughs) Damn it. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Jason Schneiderman for giving a really excellent lecture, actually at Warren Wilson's last semester's residency on the sonnet. Ooh, a, spill those uh, beans. Obviously, 14 lines is the primary uh, is the thing. Um, and then, depending on the formal tradition, right, uh, 14 lines in a turn. Okay, 14 lines in a turn That's the is main the thing. shorthand. Yeah. Shorthand, a Petrarchan sonnet is like in the eighth line. That's where the turn happens. And the Shakespearean sonnet, it's the twelfth line-ish, where the sonnet turns. Give us, teach us. Hey, hey let's go. Yes, <laughs> you know the stuff. Um, and then uh, actually taking even like a deeper uh, dive. Um, while they are traditionally seen as love poems, oh. um, it is in fact more accurate to describe the poem as a way in which we consider the subject-object relationship. Okay, mm. the subject-object relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Jason actually proposed is that we are seeing a turn in the sonnet, <gasps> pun intended. <from> <laughs> <laughs> the sonnet as a form is getting its own volta? Yeah, Ooh. oh. <laughs> oh, the fourth wall is broken. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And that what we're seeing is instead of like a singular volta, we're seeing sort of a series of voltas in sonnets. Um, and so he's proposing like a helix as a structure uh, within which to view what was sort of like more of a hinge mm. singular term. Hinge to DNA strands, mm -hmm. spiral staircase, other mm. things. Cool. You got uh, any thoughts, Lou? Hmm. I have thoughts. Um, hmm. Is there a true sonnet? The the capital P poet in me says yes, because capital P poet thinks he's you know all about the old shit. Um, <laughs> but the the Lou poet in me says there isn't a true sonnet mm. for many reasons. Um, right, one because uh, form is man-made and form is also something that needs to be destroyed and also something that needs to be traditional. It's this, you know, all these policies that all put on the form. Right. <laughs> um, but also because, like, if we're constantly not querying a form, then the form itself is going to be a hollow thing, right? And so, like, for it to be a true sonnet, quote-unquote, like, what is true? Yeah, that mean? implies that the form exists outside of humanity in some way, right. but it does not. And also outside of literary, the literary world, it's like, mm, nobody knows what a sonnet really is outside of writers and poets to be honest so like for it to be a true thing it's not really <sighs> substantial yeah well <laughs> and who gets to decide what true even really means yeah right yes sally <laughs> i think about the poem um by philippe williams um in his book um thief in the interior that is called sonnet with a cut wrist and flies um the poem mm -hmm. itself is and technically it's in 14 sections but the 13th section is repeated like maybe seven times. And I asked him, he says a true, it's a, a sonnet to him. And it is a sonnet, right? Like it's doing the sonnet thing, it has Volta, it has all those things. But why, does it, why isn't that considered a true sonnet, right? I, I'm sure if we were in an academic setting, it would be called querying the sonnet versus mm -hmm. no, this is a sonnet. So again, who decides what truth is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Sally is sick of the sonnet. Like, it's true that there were several books made entirely of sonnets. I guess it was last year. Uh, Terrence Hayes, Katie Ford. But it wasn't so many that I feel like I was getting sick of the form. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, it was felt like a, a cool resurgence to me um, of people really pushing into what that form can do when you're doing it over and over and over again like that forces a new kind of innovation for you i think if you're like how many times can i take this form and do something that feels surprising to me in it um, i could see that being a really exciting challenge for someone who enjoys writing formal poetry which i'm not <laughs> but i can imagine for others that it would be really fun I think sonnets are the most accessible to the outside world. Yes. Like people like who don't report you know what a sonnet is. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a love poem and Shakespeare wrote. That's pretty right. much the for sure. Yeah, but nobody who hasn't studied poetry is going to know what a pantoum is. Right. Yes. I mean, <laughs> beyond the fact that it's super strange for repeating in those weird areas. Um, yeah, I think there's also something about like the contemporary moment that makes sonnets super accessible. Like just in terms of like. Like in yeah. terms of length? Yeah, even just yeah. at that level, right? Like that it fits in an Instagram post mm. versus like, you know, just long poems, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think like, not to get too hyper-intellectual about it, 
But there is something Get about the subject. <laughs> there is something about the subject-object relationship that, like, you know, we as a people are like trying to sort out, right? The like sort of m- the mediated experience, um, thanks to the internet, is <laughs> like we are trying to figure out like who are we in relation to the other, who are we in relation to the earth, and like that is sort of like the primary concern of a sonnet, mm-hmm. beyond just like sort of the formal um, constraints. And so to that that to that end, I think like that seems super interesting, super relevant, and in a lot of ways, like timeless, right? I, I think one of the things, and I think I think I'm stealing this from Jason now too, is like the sonnet is supposed to enact the how the mind works. Yeah, and there are people who would say that all poetry is doing that. Yeah. As well as, yeah, I, I'm trying to think, are there, are there poems that you couldn't argue are about a subject-object relationship? Explicitly? I feel like answering the question with the poem might do disservice to the poem. (laughs) 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 But I I think that's true. I think most poems do in some way enact that subject-object relationship. But I think sonnets do it mathematically. Like Mm. their their goal is to enact or to argue that relationship versus Mm. other poems that isn't the motive behind the poem. Usually it's some other motive. But sonnets, the motive is to try to get at that relationship and argue that and like either answer or don't answer that relationship. Interesting. I buy it. I buy it. We did it. Maybe. We're we did it. We're sonneteers. There you go, Sally. We're son- the three sonneteers. Take that, Shakespeare. <laughs> ah. You think you're Shakespeare? You think you're Shakespeare, girl? <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? Oh, dear you go. On that note, <laughs> let's get into this conversation with Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, as someone born in the Philippines myself, uh, I grew up in eastern Washington. You grew up in eastern Oregon, which is like the country of the Pacific Northwest. Very different from Seattle and Portland, like sort of the persona that the Pacific Northwest has. Um, I'm curious for you how you arrived at poetry um, and then sort of at what point you realized it was a profession that um, you could have. Yeah, no. So... We arrived in the country in 1972. Um, My parents left after Marcos had declared martial law. Um, And part of the reason why we had to leave the country was they were political refugees. Um, My uncle on my father's side was blacklisted by the Marcos regime. And whenever you were blacklisted, you're basically a target for assassination or murder. Um, And of course, my dad took the temperature of the room and just said, we got to get the hell out. We have to get out of here. So... And I'm just going to tell you a long story because, I mean, I think um, it's really interesting how he got there. He basically stood in line. There's a camp in the Philippines called Camp Cramey where basically there was a a queue that was about a mile long. And he waited in that line like almost a week uh, to to get his his visas stamped. And he finally got fed up and just threw it at the guy who was stamping visas left, went home, got lunch, came back, and found his visas stamped. So we left basically that afternoon. Uh, he got a ticket to America. We, we packed what little we had, and we flew into San Francisco, and that was it. Um, and my mother at the time was a physician, um, so she basically dropped her practice. She dropped everything, and she had to start over. Um, so... 
what ended up happening is she ended up doing her residency in Virginia after San Francisco, did her internship in Connecticut, and purchased um, a practice from a, a lady who was basically retiring from a practice in Eastern Oregon. And part of the deal um, was, back then, was that, you know, in order to um, get this visa stamped or, or you know, um, get her credentials um, notarized is she had to serve an underserved population. So we ended up in Eastern Oregon. Um, and, and basically my father wept when he saw what the landscape looked like. Um, and I, I have to say that because of the landscape, because there was no community, that's where I retreated into books, where I retreated into my imagination. Um, so I, I was always writing and I'm an only child, so most of my time was spent by myself creating, inventing, reading. Were your parents, how did your parents take it when you told them you were going to be a poet? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Filipino to Filipino. <laughs> yeah. um, not well at first, um, sure. particularly my Taking father. Notes. I mean, like, he still asks me, hey, why don't you, why don't you take the, the LSAT? Uh, why don't you um, why don't you get a business degree or something like that? And I'm after all this like, time. I'm like, hello. I'm like, almost in my fifties. I mean, this is not going to happen, Dad. Um, so not well. My mom, who was a physician, took it well. Um, she understood. She knew that I didn't really have the temperament. Um, you know, I, and I I had to sort of make peace with myself. Um, you know, I, I did all the pre-med stuff. I did all the med medical stuff. I was trying to be the dutiful son. Um, I was an EMT for two years. Um, so I did all all sorts of medical stuff. Um, yeah, I was an EMT in L.A. County. Um, and that was right around 93, 94, right around the, the L.A. riots. Um, the Rodney King beating, all of that. And I was, I was an EMT in L.A. County. So it was weird. It was a wild time. Yeah. Um, so you have a new book out that's very exciting, The Boy in the Labyrinth. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, the book opens with this almost preface piece where you really lay the context of the book really bare um, and talk uh, pretty plain spokenly about being the father of these two boys who are on the autism spectrum um, and once upon a time, I had a real obsession with the connections between autism and poetry. Uh, it's like a random fact about my life. And so I was wondering if you would talk some about, if you're comfortable, how what you've learned about autism has affected how you think about poetry. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's changed my relationship with the metaphor mm -hmm. um, that that my, my, my children don't think metaphorically. They think causation right if this then this um so you know with the metaphor there's a transference and for them that transference doesn't happen um you know i mean i think that they'll understand in a limited way some of the the metaphors that i talk about but i think that um it's sort of changed how i approach writing um i think that that preface piece or that opening piece is my way of saying okay I need to back up away from the metaphor and the metaphoric language and be direct here. Um, and I think that 
it sort of serves as, as a, an anchoring piece for the book because I think that it's so metaphorical that I think readers who don't have that context won't know that that's what I'm talking about. Um, so in a nutshell, what it's done is it's made me really consider and scrutinize the way I'm using language, right? That the way I'm speaking, um, the use of repetition has become really important. Um, the use of clarity. Um, so I think that instead of metaphor, I'm using syntax. Instead of um, using sort of these deep images, I'm using clarity of language, but maybe a little bit more repetition or insistence, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and speaking on like the beginning of the book, in the first poem, um, 28, 20 ti 28 Tiny Failures in One Labyrinth, you mentioned the line, um, lately organization has been impossible. Um, so I'm curious about kind of your process in um, ordering the book and the process in sectioning the book. I can see the book being um, a, a full length book of one poem, right? But I think if you do that, we lose the moments of um, where the speaker, where the subject matter is veiled or a veiled speaker. So I'm curious really about how you sectioned the book and how ordering the book has come into play when processing all these things. I think that is something that I came to late. Um, that the initial impetus for the book was those labyrinth of prose poems, right? That there were a hundred of them, mm. um, which was sort of an unwieldy thing to manage. And I didn't know how to approach or engage it. Um, and so that's where that, that, um, that imperative, I don't know how to organize this, I don't know what I'm doing, um, this disorder, this, this feeling of disorder came in. Um, and... I think that what ended up happening is that I gave it some time distance and I, I, I walked away from it for a while. Um, this book was something that I was writing, I started in 2008. Uh, so it's been on the burner for some time and while that was cooking, I was working on two other things and so I had, had an outlet to go to, but I always kept being called back to this and in terms of the organization or the structure, I didn't come to the, the, um, the ode structure that, that you might see in this until probably at the 11th hour. Um, and why the ode? I, I wanted to structure it in a way that was argumentative, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That I mm -hmm. think that um, the book is an argument. Um, the, the book is a type of... Uh, discussion that I'm having with myself um, and whether or not I have permission to have this conversation about the subject. Mm. I think that that's sort of what's underlying in the book. Um, so I'm arguing with myself as father um, primarily. Did you ever, like, was there a clarifying moment for you when you knew where you, like, gave yourself the permission to be explicit? Like, at what point did that first, like, poem enter? So I went to uh, a writing retreat residency where I was one of the teachers. I was up in Canada, um, out in B.C., and um, uh, Alicia Ostricker was one of the teachers. And my kids were there. My kids were around, and, and they were running around, and they were having fun, and... Um, basically being part of the retreat or residency experience. And Alicia Ostricker knew that I wasn't writing about them or I didn't think I was writing about them. And then she socked me in the elevator and was like, why aren't you writing about these kids? 
Um, and I basically asked myself that question after I left. Why, why am I not writing these things? And so that sort of issued forth from me a charge that I'm going to start writing about my kids. I'm going to start engaging in the personal in ways that I hadn't before. Um, so that's where I started unpeeling the mask, mm. if that mm -hmm. makes sense, that I, I was definitely using a mask uh, to write these poems at the start. Um, and, you know, I, I think it just took a, a punch from Alicia Ostricker. <laughs> a literal yeah. punch yeah, sometimes. Yeah, a literal punch. Yeah. <laughs> from a good friend. <laughs> yeah, is yeah. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> um, I'm curious also um, in this conversation um, and how you're describing how you uh, ordered and structured the book um, about the prose poem and these kind of things. And so and you mentioned how... Um, this book has been a way for you to kind of peel back some layers. Um, how has the prose uh, structure, the prose poem, kind of offered you that allowance to peel back those layers? I'm really attracted to allegory as sort of a form or a structure. And part of the reason I'm attracted to it is because it's a story that goes in one direction, but you know it's going to turn into mm. something else. It's going to become some type of instructive a message or it's going to be some kind of lesson. Um, I'm also really fond of the sentence as a musical unit. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of my impulses when I sort of crafted that I, w I wanted to tell a story that, that was also like a parable, it functioned like a parable. It told something that was a lesson. And I also wanted to explore the ways a sentence can sound. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fully capable of lineating and line breaking, but I mean, I think that sometimes I'm working on multiple things at once. And so I have these other, um, you know, projects that I go to. And, and so I was working on um, the post subject of Fable, which is basically a book of prose poems and uh, Requiem for the Orchard, which is a lyric collection and this concurrently. So I was working on these three things. Uh, at once, and sometimes you just need a break from these other things. So, <laughs> you know, um, if you look back at post-subject of fable and you look at this, there's a lot of carryover. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of a lot of echo, and so part of my process of revision with this in the form, the prose poem form, is erasing some of that echo. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Episode four, Labyrinth. The boy in the labyrinth sees daylight, its streams veiled by a rain of dust motes. Looking up, the boy feels he is on the ocean bottom. There, in that skittering, a flock of birds become manta rays. They pull their arms downward, and in the interval between strokes, a chance. With a mouth full of mimicries, the boy calls their song, spontaneous as the bitten part of desire, mm. the cloven-hooved part, mm. the part that happens within the minotaur's hum. Its songs spiral out of its mouth. Bright globes of air rise in forceful inattentions. Wrens disappear into a clutch of small marks in the sky. 
the space between them, its own life force. There, below the surface of the world, the boy cannot shake his transitory feeling. How the image of the birds fading into the light does not involve him. Wave after wave of liquid images, the spectral waters on a steaming horizon. The boy touches his skull and feels the minerals of his bones. He marvels at how the bluish light surrounds him, soaks him while the maw of the corridors swallows the margins. Clouds float above, dividing into smaller clouds. Parting as they do, they know no loneliness. They needn't reply to anyone, they just burst apart, seams tugged by someone's hand. The boy does not know home, only its omission. And by omission, the sky is slathered by a deep and inky brush. The violent strokes, smears of plumage from a flock of rooks. The seams come apart. The fabric separates into two layers, the here and the here. So home is a topic that comes up on the podcast with somewhat frequency. And um, this line, the boy does not know home, only its omission, uh, makes me wonder what you think of when you think of home and if it's something that you also think of in terms of negation. Yeah, it, it's about comfort for me. I'm, I'm a person of ritual. I really like ritual. I like my routine. Um, my boys are very much beings who require ritual. Um, you know, part of, you know, what is their diagnosis and what is expected for them and what is sort of um, tracked in um, kids who have autism. Um, they need a particular type of routine. Um, there's safety in routine. There's a particular type of comfort in the routine. And um, I think that for myself, I mean, in many ways, I, I feel like I need that routine and I need that particular type of comfort. Um, so that's, that's home for me. That, that's a particular kind of place for me. Um, the understanding or the expectation that, um, things will be as they are. Um, I kind of like that. I kind of like the expected. I don't like a whole lot of surprises. Oh God. You know, I mean, God forbid someone throw me a surprise party. It's the worst. <laughs> same on the I same do way. I not want ever. <laughs> My wife said she would just kill me if she did that. You know, like if, if I did that for her too. So we're very similar in that, in that regard. Yeah. So I don't like surprises. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, it's funny because we started the conversation with you talking about, you know, being in the country of Eastern Oregon, yeah. like not having a sense of community. Right. Um, and sort of, I think this is an interesting place to think too about like your role with Kundiman and like your role as a community builder, how you sort of see yourself in that. Um, and like, what is the relationship there in terms of like, I don't know, is there a relationship, I guess, between sort of having a lack of community and then sort of the role that you see yourself in now and yeah. how that feels like home to you? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, if, if you've ever, if you ever have the chance to, to see what Kundiman does, I think that, um, you know, the, the community that Sarah and Joseph had built over the years is really foundational for a lot of artists. And I think that one of the things that having a, a community that's like a home for folks is that it grants them permission. Um, and I think that in the Asian American community in particular, 
there's a lot of trauma that that isn't talked about um, that, you know, I mean, if we if we think about it, uh, particularly the newer immigrants, the, the say the Cam- Cambodians, the Vietnamese, the Hmong population, they're they're children of war. And um, so. The space that we provide in Kuniman that, that Joseph and Sarah have been providing for years has been a space that often allows people comfort, routine, ritual, all these things that we talked about, that the, the expectations of home, um, and, and the sense that you belong, right? Um, I think that, again, and this is the other thing with, with the Asian American community, is that sometimes um, because we're sort of a newer immigrant population, there's a misunderstanding uh, that that resides in um, the artist. I mean, we don't understand the artist in the community, right? They, we, it's not practical. It is not something that, say, first-generation immigrants expect from their children, their progeny, right? That's the LSAT. Yes, yeah, the LSAT. <laughs> the LSAT. Yeah, LSAT. Well, yeah. yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. You know, I mean, I, and I was, I was, I was also, I bought into that. That was certainly something that I felt obligated to do. Um, and, and I think that as I've, I've developed a community, I've also found a particular type of home in that, in that kind of work, in that kind of um, community building. Yeah. So one of my uh, sort of obsessions are like ethics of witness. Um, and particularly in relationship with family. Um, and the boy in the labyrinth is sort of, is billed as this like really deeply autobiographical book, right, about your two sons. Um, and, but the actual poems have very few first person pronouns. Right. Uh, and the poems are very allegorical and mythic, like we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so the speaker is omniscient and often sort of disembodied. And I'm curious, as I think about the poetics of witness, that, uh, the way to maintain a certain kind of ethic, at least for me, is to sort of have a, your body at stake. Right. And to be in it. Right. Um, and so I'm curious for you, how do you wrestle with the ethics of witness as a, with a disembodied voice? That's a great question. I, I think that it is still something that I'm struggling with in this book. Um, Gabby, you noted that there's sort of the, a coda that opens up the book, and I think that the coda is functionally that place where I, I offer my body. Uh, but I don't offer it anywhere else in the book, and um, I think that that's, that's a conversation that, that I'm still having with myself as I perform the, the work. I think what's particularly fraught for me as a neurotypical person is... Um, talking about issues of neurodiversity. Um, And so what I know is that the work is asynchronous with how I think and how I I am now as a parent. And that's okay, right? That's okay that I, in my process of being a parent and being a poet and learning and growing from this process, understand that there are moments where this mask is problematic. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is. And and I have to own that. Um, it doesn't mean that I, lo- I don't love the work that I did and that I don't embrace it. But I have to acknowledge that there are moments when I'm, I'm worried that I might hurt my son. 
Mm-hmm. I might hurt my children. Um, I might hurt somebody from the neurodiverse community. Um, and I think that I'm attempting in the opening and then the closing to say, look, I understand the limitations of myself as witness. Um, and I think that it, it's just a gesture, right? It's just a gesture. It's not going to solve everything. Um, but, you know, again, it's, a, it's, it's more or less an assurance for myself that, that look, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to do good. Um, I also think that it's important to educate yourself. I mean, that, that there's some really great work by, by neurodiverse artists out there. Um, there's a series of chapbooks um, called Unrestricted Interest, uh, and it's put together by, oh, you have it. Yeah, uh, so it's uh, a chapbook series by uh, Chris Martin, um, and he basically publishes a lot of neurodiverse artists who are nonverbal, uh, who are just amazing, who are amazing artists, yeah. So, I mean, I think that I'm trying to negotiate that. I really am trying to negotiate my positionality. Um, I know it's fraught. Uh, I understand that it's fraught. I understand that I'm vulnerable, um, that I'm liable to hurt people's feelings. Um, but I think that part of my efforts to talk about it, including being on this podcast, is to say, look, there's work that's being done by some really fantastic neurodiverse people. We should pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. We should really uh, jump on board for that, for, that, um, for that wonderful work. I'm curious, too, about then, um, you know, in lieu of sort of offering your body at moments, offering your son's bodies, mm-hmm. um, uh, like what that sort of artistic decision is like, and then sort of at the most sort of tactical level, like the choice to not name your sons in the book. Right. It was, well, I had them named and then I took it out. Mm, um, interesting. Which, I mean, like if you're any Google savvy person, you can certainly find sure. out. Um, I, can I'm, I jump in real quick? Was this in the prose poems or in more of the questionnaire No, in the questionnaire. Okay. Yeah, in the questionnaire Great. poems, um, in the coda and in the, um, the credo. Um, they were named. Um, and then I struck them. Part of that was sort of editorial, that there was just some inconsistencies, but a part of that was that I wanted at least a veil of, of protection. Um, and, boy, it's hard to write about family. Um, it really is. <laughs> you can say that again. Yeah, well, it's really hard. And, and um, you know, I did talk to them about this, that I was, uh, I was writing about them, but not for them. Hmm. And I think that... Um, you know, my, my, my oldest understood. He says, I get it. It's fine. Um, he may have a different answer when he's 16. He may have a different answer when he's 21. Um, so that's a conversation that we're going to have. Um, I, I have to acknowledge that we are, as people, in flux, too. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that he, I have to respect his, in, in his interiority, um, he um, also certainly understands where I'm coming from as a writer. Um, he doesn't uh, he doesn't block me or he doesn't prevent me from writing certain things. But again, he's still young, so that may change. Yeah. Um, 
from what I'm hearing you're saying, um, and it's this question is about what you've learned, you know, from writing myth, but what I'm hearing um, already from the previous um, answers you gave is that something about this book has taught you something about um, poem as gesture and then the intention behind gesturing as a poem and sometimes how that can sometimes fail. Um, and kind of being, taking ownership in, quote unquote, the failure of the gesture. Um, and so again, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you saying that you kind of learned that by writing this book and having it out in the world. So I'm curious about what else has um, writing through myth or using myth as a vehicle has taught you about your own poems or, and poetry in general. I, well, this book is entirely about failure. Um, I think that it's important to say that, that, that um, it opens with a, an essay about failure. Um, and so I understand that there are ways in which I'm not going to reach the community that I want to mm -hmm. reach. Um, that said, myth is one way to access or attempt to access a community. Now, who has access to that community, a particular type of community, mm -hmm. right? A particular type of community who knows the thesis and the Minotaur myth. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a particular <laughs> erudite community, right? I mean, I mean, what are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. Um, so immediately, because I'm using this illusion, I know that I'm not going to reach certain people. Um, I know that I'm not going to reach my kids, mm -hmm. um, although they are reading myths now. So that's, that's something that they might, in the long run, um, understand. Um, I think that trying these particular type of skins is a way of stepping into different vehicles, right? That, that yes, here's the tenor. I'm going to try different shapes mm -hmm. to express that tenor uh, in a way that maybe you'll understand, right? Um, and sometimes that takes work, right? There's a particular type of labor that, that happens between us when we're trying to understand or we're trying to negotiate the terms of our discussion, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm very aware of, of the, the long and complicated history of myth and the long and complicated... Um, you know, tradition of the Western canon. Um, I'm aware of it. Um, and so that has its own, you know, perils, right? Yeah. You mentioned trying on skins, which made me think about the anthology that you edited, uh, A Face to Meet the Faces, right? Which is all about persona poetry. Um, and that was years ago, but I'm wondering how you're thinking about persona poetry maybe differently now than you did when you were putting that anthology together. Well, can we talk about Keats? Um, <laughs> Always, yeah. Uh, I might get in trouble here. Um, Do it. You know, I mean, I think that, well, I mean, like, there's this idea that, that, that Keats grants you permission, you know, the, the negative capability that you can mm -hmm. sort of inhabit all these selves. And I think that... I think Is that, that what negative capability well, is about? Well, it's like you can, you, can, you can aspire to, right? Uh, it's this particular type of permission I don't know if that works in this year, in this era. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that works without a particular type of informed consent, mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. sense, right? That, yeah. that there has to be some level of understanding. And I think that it's just, it's the same understanding that I had when I developed with Stacy the um, Face to Meet the Faces anthology. It's like there's a particular, there's a particular boundary Mm -hmm. um, there is. Um, there's a particular type of negotiation that you have to do when you're trying on a face, right? When you're trying on a skin. Um, 
And I think that that has a lot to do with, um, well, I mean, you know, uh, there, there are two things that you got to consider when you're thinking about uh, persona. You're thinking about accuracy, right? Am I conveying this person accurately? But then you also have to think about whether you're attuning yourself to that particular persona. And attunement is kind of the bigger, broader category of, have I read? Have I understood the history? Have I um, looked at that community and understood the community in my limited capacity? Um, what are the earmarks of boundary or territory that I can't cross? So like if we're, we're juggling these two ideas, accuracy and attunement, um, I think in a lot of ways the attunement and um, you know, sort of centering yourself in the skin is far more important, right? I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah. Yeah. I'm curious on failure, you know, I, th I think it's really interesting to propose that like this book is about failure or to like that as a starting point. Um, and I think like, I, I guess like if we're probably being honest, a lot of us start writing poems from a place of failure, um, but never sort of get to that self-realization. I think just as a term, of, as a matter of craft though, like how do you then know that your poem isn't a failure? Mm. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what a question. No, I'm thinking of I honesty word. I just, like I send it out. Like, uh, just yeah, let somebody out. else decide that. Just, you know, I mean, really, I mean, I think that, you know, and I tell my students this, it's like, well, how do you know when a poem is done, right? I don't, I just send them out. Um, and then sometimes I let someone else make that decision and then I come back to it and then I renegotiate my relationship with the work. Um, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's one of the, I, I think that um, part of publication is, I, I always view publication not necessarily as an end, but a part of the editorial process. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, I think that's a healthy way to think about publication, yeah. right? That sometimes mm -hmm. you just have to surrender the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to let it go. Yep. Yeah. 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 And there's, so there's sort of this, I, I'm also thinking a lot about just like uh, the best way to sort of push against like the commodification of art is to sort of incorporate the commodity into the process. Right. Right. And, and like that, the, <laughs> that the, and the, that, and so it's interesting like to say that the book is maybe a reflection of that process and not itself like a finished product, right? Which is like then sure. potentially a different orientation. Would, I guess like would you call your book that? I, I mean, I'm very much in process. I'm like thinking about this book and how I think about it is constantly changing. I mean like Robert Lowell was constantly revising his work. Um, I mean – I am still noodling and canoodling. I'm taking out words as I read. And I think that in a lot of ways, performance, when you perform the work, that's a different type of revision, right? You're, you're changing effectively the work so that it performs well in front of a particular audience, right? Um, you're changing the way in which the art um, occupies a space, right? I mean, like certain poems aren't going to work as rendered. So you have to change them. And I think that that's okay. That's part of the process. I mean, isn't every poem a failure in a way? Like, if every poem is somewhat of a gesture, and gesture is just leaning towards the actual thing, in some ways poems are, I mean, it's done possibly because it's the closest to the thing you want it right. to be. But it can never but be. But it's still not going to be 
done. Like, because you're just gesturing, trying to get at the thing or the image or the narrative. So I just feel like, I mean, everything's a failure. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Same. That's the takeaway, really. I mean, we're getting into some, like, philosophical conversations now, but, like, I feel like language itself is a failure, and therefore, how can poetry, which is the art of language, not also be a failure? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all, it's yeah. all representational, right? Yeah. 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 And I think that part of, the, you know, part of the thing that we're negotiating with is, like, we're we're trying to represent in our best way and in our best space at this particular time or this particular <laughs> moment mm-hmm. an emotion or a belief or a feeling. Mm. And you're not going to feel that 10 minutes later. Mm. And you're not going to feel that an hour later. But someone else might. And I think that that's, that's the negotiation art, right? That, that basically you create this thing and then you move on because your feelings and your moments and your being is asynchronous with the art that you've made, but it might be synchronous with someone else. Right? Mm. It might fall in line with how someone is thinking or feeling, or it might be a facsimile or near or somewhat representational of how that other person is feeling. So a couple things. Can I preface this? Um, that again, there are two voices in this. The first voice is the voice of the questionnaire, and the second voice is that of a neurotypical parent. Um, I think it's important to stress that. Autism screening questionnaire, abnormal, symbolic, or imaginative play. Does your child flap his hands? Does he self-stimulate in ecstatic moments? It is a kind of remembering the body is the body. For example, these arms are for grasping. These hands are capable of holding and touching the known and unknown. And how remarkable it all is, scintillate the way wonder surges toward the filaments. Does he bang his head? On the inside, the retort of feeling accumulates as weight. It is like the smoke that had risen to the cellar suddenly becomes thick and resinous, a song heard while submerged in a pool. Does he self-mutilate, inflict pain or injury? Huddled close against the soft thrum of rainfall against our roof, and his fingers hook into my eye sockets, It is always this. His fingers seek an empty to fill. Chorus of his nails pressed into my flesh, thrust into the seam of our borders. My body, his pain, our pain. Hmm. Does he toe walk, possess clumsy body posture? Full sure and big footed, he tumbles across the laminate shaky flicker of sense up the spinal pathways, synaptic leaps saying move or glide, the effort of nerves to shape the body's urgencies stuttering into what's stuck. Does he arrange toys in rows? Because design is a prism of the mind, because placement is in relation to, because the polyglot of form needs order, because blue car next to green car next to red car all along the highway, 
because the serpentine of die-cast metal relentlessly gleams, because form is relentless, relentlessly infinite. Does he smell, bang, lick, or inappropriately use toys? Unbuffered tang, metallic with a murmur of salt, an ersatz flavor fevering plastics, having tasted sugar, having known sugar when the knowing is a haunt, a shape in the mouth that is not a souffle and not a seed, this palpable fat, this gummy warmth, this tender unknown. Does he focus interest on toy parts such as car wheels? Every object has a purpose, every purpose hums its will, Plastic tires in close orbits, firestones nearly spun into the eye, as if the urge to become the eye was the tire's concern. The idea that the thing could move beyond the membranes of the self to become fully boy, to be sewn into the boy's mind, and having been possessed intensely by the thing upon the thing's cessation, grief. Is he obsessed with objects or topics? The Amanita genus is his favorite and includes the death cap. You will know a death cap by its off-colored patches, the remnants of what was once a veil that had surrounded the mushroom when it was young. We had lived in a place of quiet, surrounded by every manner of fungus, and he would stand in the rain until drenched, looking at the same clump of mushrooms, fairy rings, polypore shelves, sleek and concealed little spore bearers hidden under leaves, lobes of chanterelles, the coral-like hemispheres of morels thinking in their darkness. Does he spin objects himself? Is he fascinated with spinning objects? Pinwheels staked along the sidewalk, their abiding gyres a mess of colors. He seems to take them as evidence of the refuge, an embrace behind the eyes, a wild ecstasy trammeled by a center. It hones him in, his being wound down as one winds a clock to take ample measure of what is infinitesimally daunting and thus pulled in by the swirl. Are his interests restricted? Does he watch the same video over and over? In the dark, in the night, in the glow of the day, audible fuzz of the screen like passing rain, shuddering spray of TV light, its pixelated filaments pierce the gloom, split the gap that veils in from out. The image makes a testament that's constantly upheld. Does he have difficulty stopping a repetitive, boring activity or conversation? The toy truck's wheels rotate clockwise, then counter. In the sandbox, he puts his eyes close to the wheels. The sand hisses out from the treads and into the tender folds of his eye, its membranes soft tissues. The pain must be unbearable and still he pushes me away as I try to reclaim him from whatever mystery holds him, from whatever faraway place whistles to his brain, its boulevard of wheels 
spinning past his bewildered imagination. Does he have an unusual attachment to objects, sticks, stones, strings, hair, etc.? Pocketfuls of stone, chalcedony and pyrite, the milky ghost of quartz, tiger's eye, iron flakes wedged into thin veins, oars reluctantly peering in tentacle-like threads sewn into igneous rhyolite, peppered granites and rounded skipping stones palmed and warm. He demand I carry them all in my pockets, all of their weight pressed against my thigh, raucous with each step. Is he stubborn about rituals and routines? Is he resistant to change? Head down, his mind a needle, intellect extended into the tip where his concentration pierces the veil, a thousand tiny exit wounds of time against the backdrop of the sun become a galaxy, a galaxy of pinpricks where the seasons never change and October is always October, and the forms of constellations are immutable, never ebbing, never unreliably winking out like gods of firm promises. Are his tastes restricted by consistency, shape, or form? His mouth cradles the form that is most consistent with a memory. Does he have a savant ability or a restricted skill superior to his age group? His mind teems with magical thought, the possibilities of every moment. If the clock were a cicada winding down, if the rain were an unfurled scroll of lost voices, if the sky held all the animals everyone had loved, then the absolutes holding us here with our grief are not sovereign. That this alchemy scratched with debris and errata, these waves sweeping our houses loose from their pilings, all of it is soluble in the swirling cacophony of his mind. Thank you to Oliver for delighting and instructing us. <laughs> for giving us an excuse to get cranked on espresso soda, which I don't believe I've ever had before. That's pretty good. Cranked? Cranked. And for the opportunity to dive into uh, talking about... <laughs> the sea we went swimming about writing poems uh, about kids uh, community and kundiman thank you to the flavor blue for our awesome theme music fetty and spaghetti uh, listen to it if you haven't mm. in full thank you to our listeners for being you we love you for listening to us for listening at all period period <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod. We're there. Send us your questions, your compliments, your hot goss, your mundane observations, your kimchi recipes. I love kimchi. I do too. It's the bomb. Really, any fermented vegetable yeah. situation. You can also mail us those. Let us know. Uh, first, email us, and then we can give you the address to physically mail it to us. Kimchi in mail. Our email address is thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Chi wali wali, chi bang bang. While the world is falling, we keep.
can maintain Folding origami Making crane cranes Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain I put salt in the water When I'm cooking up the pasta Trying to keep me quiet But you know it's gonna cost ya Cause I cook them proper Redder than a lobster Gourmet bait But my mama was a monster You wanna weaponize this? Gonna show you these hands Gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy in the...